Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. I'm Greg Dalton, and today on Climate One, we're talking about the Arctic in a warming world. President Obama's recent trip to the Arctic, the first for a sitting U.S. president, shined a light on the vast wilderness and the indigenous people in Alaska. Now that the president and the headlines have moved on, we'll discuss what's going on up north and why Americans in the lower 48 should care about a region few will visit and most of us know very little about. For starters, European merchandise Californians buy at the store may soon come through the Arctic rather than the Panama Canal. Drilling for oil and natural gas is moving forward, and tourism and other economic opportunities are opening up. That's because the sea ice is melting at an alarming rate. We'll discuss all that and more over the next hour and take questions from our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. We have four guests on the stage to share their insights on the new Arctic, William Collins is director of the Climate and Ecosystem Science Division at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. Alex Levinson is executive director of the Pacific Environment, an advocacy group focused on the Arctic. Sergei Petrov represents Russia as its consul general in San Francisco. And Hilda Skorpin represents Norway as its consul general in San Francisco. Please welcome them to Climate One. Sergei Petrov, uh, once, not too long ago, the Arctic was an area where Soviet and American bombers were flying around, and it was an area of um, uh, some military activity. President Obama went there recently as the first sitting president to go to the Arctic. What do you make of the symbolism and the importance of President Obama going up there? Um, I would say that um, I wouldn't agree how you put this question. Uh, because what we should uh, do what the last thing we should do with the Arctic is to politicize it uh, so yes there was a, there were times that, uh, with some strategic uh, uh, games in the Arctic uh, they passed and I hope they will not uh, we will not get back to that and uh, uh, what we should do is put Arctic outside uh, politics, be it foreign politics or 
internal politics of any country and to use seriously, uh, to, to work seriously on, um, on the challenges we have in this region. Because this region, and we'll speak about that today, is the region that uh, all the world depends on, be it climate, be it energy, be it uh, uh, level of the world ocean. So what we should do is uh, uh, to put this region outside any political games, any geopolitical games, and to try to deal seriously with the challenges we, we, we see there today. Um, we will, uh, good point. Uh, we will come back to, to that. Uh, Hilda Scorpin, there's a new ocean at the top of the world, and uh, people are paying more attention, maybe some because the president went there, maybe because it's more on the news, more. Uh, but how do you see this uh, awareness of this new ocean at the top of the world? You've been living there a long time, but Americans are just kind of newly discovering this place. Um, yeah, well, it's uh, not really a new ocean. The ocean has been there all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and it has been uh, subject to the um, law of the sea. And uh, we hear a lot of uh, uh, people talking about uh, sort of a scramble for resources. Mm. We uh, don't uh, think that is the case. Um, most of the resources in the uh, Arctic are found on the uh, seabeds of uh, national territory of uh, the countries on the continental shelves. Uh, and uh, very little is actually uh, not subjected to uh, the uh, continental uh, shelf uh, deliberations that are now going on. Mm. Uh, most countries in the uh, Arctic have submitted their documentation for the outer limits of the continental shelf. And to my knowledge, it's only 8 or 10 percent that, uh, that is not uh, part of that. And uh, estimates of resources in the region uh, holds that those, that is not the place where you find most of the resources. So just to clarify, the further a, a country's continental shelf goes out, they can basically claim that's ours, right? They can, cl they can claim that it's ours, but that is part of the um, Convention on the uh, Sea, the UN yeah. Convention on the Law of the Sea. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, um, one a convention that all the Arctic uh, states, all the states bordering the Arctic, have, um, have um, uh, committed themselves to observe. They have explicitly stated that uh, they uh, um, recognize the uh, law of the sea and the convention of the law of the sea as the legal regime for this uh, region. Alex Levinson, is there a resource scramble going on in the Arctic? Well, there is a resource scramble going on on the continental shelves, mm -hmm. Russia, mm -hmm. Norway, and the U.S. are all looking at offshore oil drilling. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. an oil disaster would be the single worst danger for the Arctic because mm -hmm. it's a place, everybody here remembers in the Gulf of Mexico, the oil spill, the BP Deepwater Horizon, where for nearly three months the oil gushed out. In the Arctic, if you drill in the late summer, pack ice is beginning to close in, and then the darkness closes in and the ice closes in, and you have an oil disaster, it could go on for the entire season. It could go on for a year. And it's under conditions with, with extremely um, delicate and fragile ecosystems that we even barely begin to understand. Now, there is also a new ocean emerging at the top of the world. It is an ocean that's been there before, but it bef it's had permanent sea ice. And the scientists are now telling us the sea ice, as it recedes, may be open as early. They were saying 2050, then they were saying 2030. And I've seen some scientists say it could even be open summer, sea, open summer oceans by about 2020. And the kind of resource scramble you'll have there 
will be shipping over the top of the world, the new Panama Canal, an Alaskan politician called it, and you'll also have fishing and potentially overfishing. And there's more to say on that because the nations here have actually done an agreement to try to get ahead of that fishing issue. So there's a lot up there. Uh, and I'd like to come back to Sergei Petrov. You talked about not politicizing the region. In 2007, I went up in the Arctic my first time there. It was a global warming symposium with scientists. I was, went to uh, Siberia and on a Russian icebreaker. And that was the life-changing trip that prompted me to fund uh, Climate One. And at the same time, when I was up there, there were some divers that planted a Russian flag on the seafloor near the North Pole. Was that not a political act and a political statement? Okay, it's not a good habit to ask questions to answer the questions. <laughs> but uh, when an American astronaut planted a U.S. flag on the moon, was it that the U.S. claimed the territory of the moon? But uh, seriously, I remember this moment. I was, uh, I was, uh, I was watching a movie, uh, IMAX movie in Ottawa, when it uh, happened, and I started receiving calls on my cell phone. And I was in charge of the uh, Russian um, embassy in Ottawa at the time, with ambassador being uh, on vacations in, in, back in Russia. And I started receiving these calls from the media and asking me to comment on uh, what happened. Uh, and after that, it was like uh, uh, two weeks of torture from uh, um, government, politicians, media, uh, uh, asking me to explain what happened. And what happened, it's, uh, it's very easy. We, we had two, two uh, deep uh, um, uh, capsules, deep, deep sea capsules that went down, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, to 2000... Uh, uh, 200 meters uh, uh, to the bottom of the sea uh, at the North Pole. And uh, there were not only Russians there, by the way. Uh, it was One was Australian and one was Swedish um, uh, citizens, part of this international team. And yes, they did plant it um, uh, uh, as a symbolic thing, a Russian flag there, because the, the most part of the science and technology were uh, made by Russia, and uh, it was a symbol of uh, uh, Russia first being able to do something like that, uh, mm -hmm. to reach uh, uh, the North Pole and to reach the bottom of the sea at the North Pole, and second, to, uh, as it happened on the moon, to uh, show what our civilization can do. Mm -hmm. Hopefully we'll do it for the benefit of us, or for well, us. William Collins, uh, most people will never get to the seafloor, to the Arctic. Uh, why does the Arctic matter to people in the lower 48 in California? How does it affect our life, our weather, etc.? Well, the Arctic is home to one of the great land ice sheets on, the, on Earth, uh, the Greenland Ice Sheet. And we know that that sheet is beginning to lose water into the ocean, which causes sea level rise. Uh, it's losing it more and more rapidly, and this is going to come home to roost uh, on coastlines around the world. Greenland is equal to about seven meters of sea level rise. Uh, and Can it, you translate that for Americans? That's 21 feet? Okay. Uh, sure, that's approximately 23 feet of sea level rise. Um, Antarctica is, I'm sorry, I have to go south here for a minute, but Antarctica is 10 times that. 
So you don't want to mount them, is the general rule of thumb here. Um, <laughs> really not a good idea. And uh, we, know, uh, we now have satellites that can measure how much mass Greenland is losing every year. We can actually measure the gravitational pull of the Greenland ice sheet from space. And what we've been able to tell is that Greenland is losing 200 cubic kilometers of ice every year. Uh, so that's uh, what, the way this will show up is that increasingly the sea level rise, which has been dominated just by the fact that the ocean, when it gets hot, expands, more and more sea level rise will be dominated by the melt from land glaciers and from Greenland. There are a couple of other ways in which the Arctic affects uh, life here in California and life in the American West. There are about 10 million square kilometers, and sorry, I'm going to be doing everything in metric, I'm a scientist, so, uh, but <laughs> 10 million square kilometers of frozen soil called permafrost left over from the last glacial maximum. And that permafrost is a mixture of ice and soil. It contains a lot of carbon. And when that soil is fro is, uh, thaws, it causes damage to infrastructure. That's primarily kind of a local problem. But it also releases carbon and methane into the Earth's atmosphere. And that acts to accelerate global warming. So one of our concerns and one of the things we've been monitoring recently is just how much additional greenhouse gas will be released into the atmosphere as this huge region of the north begins to thaw. These are all measured. Uh, all these trends have been well documented. This is all happening in real time. Um, while certain politicians have, would have trouble seeing Russia from their home, despite assertions to the contrary, um, one thing that those politicians most definitely can see are what are known as drunken forests. And so these are forests where the trees that used to be you know, straight upright are now tilting over because they're, the, root balls, the, the root balls that were anchored in frozen soil have gotten unglued uh, because the soil is thawing, and, and you, Alaska is home to many, many drunken forests these days. Lots going on up there. Mm -hmm. uh, so, Hilda Scorpin, the irony here is that burning fossil fuels is making the Arctic ch changing it and also making it more accessible. Mm -hmm. So, your country's been drilling up there for a long time. Should they drill more? Should you stop drilling what you're doing now? How are you approaching this this contradiction? Well, yes, we have been drilling uh, for 50 years now, actually. Um, we started drilling in the North Sea. We have moved uh, gradually northwards. Uh, we have um, uh, implemented the uh, strictest environmental standards uh, on our uh, petroleum activity of any country in the world. Uh, already in 1991, we imposed uh, a carbon tax. Uh, we are the only country in Europe, I know, that uh, is engaged in uh, carbon capture and storage. And on three fields, we are uh, depositing uh, um, carbon in underground storage depots. So that is, uh, it is uh, very strict, uh, strict uh, emission standards. Flaring is uh, not allowed, and uh, that has always been uh, forbidden, uh, unless for safety reasons, or uh, at least uh, from very early on. And flaring is a big problem. That is uh, one of the big sources of emission. Uh, we, ha we are very active in uh, areas trying to uh, uh, mitigate the effects of um, emissions. 
First and foremost, I would say that, uh, that uh, getting good results at the climate uh, conference in Paris now is maybe the number one, the most important thing we can do uh, to have uh, uh, strong uh, targets. Uh, Norway is following the targets of the EU there. We are, uh, our target is to uh, cap um, emissions of uh, carbon dioxide or greenhouse gases by 40% uh, by uh, 2030 uh, relative to uh, 1990 uh, uh, numbers. But we are also taking initiatives for more binding um, cooperation on, uh, on halting the um, uh, short-lived uh, climate drivers like uh, black carbon uh, suit and, and, and so on. I guess the inf- unfortunate thing is that we are living in an uh, energy-starved world. And uh, we know that the uh, uh, fossil fuel is going to be a substantial part of the ener- energy mix for years to come. Uh, we are investing more and more in, uh, in uh, uh, research on uh, uh, renewable energy. And uh, even our biggest oil company, Statoil, is involved in, uh, in research on uh, offshore uh, wind, floating wind uh, power and uh, solar power, and so on. So, um, international... Yes, Sergei Petrov here. Should there be drilling in the Arctic, oil and gas drilling in the Arctic? There's a big fuss here Uh, in the United States. President Obama opened up some leases to shale oil. Uh, The head of the International Energy Agency recently said that drilling for oil and gas in the Arctic is too difficult, too expensive, at least in today's current oil markets. Mm. Is that something Russia sees as a big promise? Mm. First of all, I, I, I think that um, drilling in any place in the world, be it uh, uh, Mexican Gulf or Arctic, is dangerous, is dangerous if uh, um, adequate precautions are not taken to be it safe and um, sound. But if we speak about um, uh, Arctic uh, specifically, I think we, as, as a civilization, we, we do not have a choice right now just to stop drilling. We would be short of energy. I agree with uh, Hilde. And, uh, uh, so we should do it with uh, extra uh, caution. And um, I should mention here definitely the agreement we have for the Arctic. Uh, we have uh, one of the agreement uh, that was reached within the Arctic Council a couple of years ago uh, is to prevent um, uh, oil spills in, in the Arctic. We don't have, for example, this kind of uh, agreement for the rest of the world, but we do have it for the Arctic. Uh, and uh, one more thing that I, would, uh, I should mention, looking for resources and trying to get to the resources in the Arctic is, is still a a goal is still a, a project uh, in, in front of us. Uh, we have a good saying in, in Russian. Uh, in, uh, we say, "Delit shkuru neubitova medvedya," which in English would uh, mean uh, to cut the skin of an unkilled bear. So, actually, resources that we are trying to calculate now—30 percent, 25 percent. Uh, in the Arctic, they're still very difficult to get to with the modern technology, with the modern resources that we have. Uh, is very difficult, and probably it will take uh, years and years uh, before we can do something substantial there as we do in other parts of the world. And 
that stresses the importance of us being together in doing something like that. And uh, Arctic Council is, is a good example of how uh, the coastal states and Ar all Arctic states are working together to ensure that we, what we do in the Arctic, be it drilling, be it uh, uh, search and rescue, be it uh, transportation, uh, scientific uh, exploration, all this uh, should be within uh, certain very well uh, done and uh, very well designed rules. Sergei Petrov is the uh, Russian Consul General in San Francisco. We're talking about the Arctic at Climate One. Uh, Alex Levinson, isn't it inevitable that resource extraction happens in the Arctic? We have an energy-starved world. Uh, and isn't it really a matter of managing what happens rather than there's really no way to stop it? Well, to this California audience, Californians know <laughs> that we're going to get off fossil fuels completely, and we're going to get off it quicker... <laughs> We're going to get off it quicker and faster than people think because we have to, and we're going to do that. This reminds me of a, if you think of the world as a, a car, a, nation, a community in a car driving toward a cliff, and at first you didn't know you were going toward a cliff, but the scientists are all telling us you're heading for the cliff, and we keep saying, the people in the car keep saying, can't help it, we have to keep going toward that cliff, there's no other way around it. And I don't, I don't see us doing that. And I, I want to say something particularly about the curse of oil and the curse of fossil fuels and how it distorts the conversation. Norway's been a real leader on this, on all kinds of things in terms of um, the, using the best standards. Um, Norway has the largest sovereign wealth fund in the world. It's a nation of 5 million people. It has the largest sovereign wealth fund in the world. And it recently announced in the last year, I believe it was, that they would completely divest of any investments in, that are coal-related. Norway deserves a huge cheer for that kind of leadership. <laughs> now, the money for that sovereign wealth fund, of course, came primarily from oil extraction, but, but worse. Nor, the Norwegian government then subsidized a coal mine on the island of Svalbard in the Arctic region. And I, I don't mean to attack Norway here. Oil and fossil fuels distort decision-making, but petrol states always do this. So my state of Alaska, my nation's state of Alaska, the governor of Alaska right now, Governor Walker, who's not a conservative Republican, which is what you typically expect from Alaska. He's an independent and as liberal a politician as you'll find in Alaska. When President Obama came up, he said to Obama, we need to get more natural gas into the pipeline. We need those revenues. Why do we need those revenues? Because we need to relocate our indigenous native Alaskan villages, which are being flooded. They cost about $200 million to $300 million to um, relocate a village of about 300 or 400 people. We don't have the revenues unless we get that natural gas revenues so that we can pay to relocate the village that's being flooded because of the burning of fossil fuels. So we need to get that into the system. Everybody get that? <laughs> So the problem is, is the, the petrol state and the curse of oil always traps us in these kind of strange, dysfunctional decision-making. We're going to have to get off fossil fuels. And doing it in the Arctic, a place that largely is undeveloped, is the worst place to start drilling for new oil now or getting new coal. Yeah. <clears throat> 
Alex Levinson is the head of Pacific Environment, an environmental organization focused on the Arctic. I want to go to our lightning round, but first, Sergei Petrov, Russia is a resource-rich state, natural gas, oil and gas. Can you see a path away? Are you trapped in an oil curse? Uh, we'll uh, take the path that uh, California took some times ago, technology. Technology we'll will that. help. All right, I want to go to our, uh, our lightning round. Uh, this is a series of yes or no questions, uh, quick-paced for our audience here at Climate One today, starting with William Collins. Uh, yes or no, yacht clubs will be built in the Arctic during the lifetime of people listening to this program? Yes. Uh, Hilda Scorpin, uh, going to see melting glaciers before they're all gone is a selfish act that doesn't respect future generations. No. Uh, Sergei Petrov, what is your favorite James Bond movie? <laughs> Doctor, Doctor No. <laughs> the old one. The real one. Uh, thinking maybe Goldfinger, that's a good one. Uh, and who's your favorite James Bond actor? Uh, Sean Connery. Yeah, good. Right. Nice. Um, Hilda Scorpin, Vladimir Putin evokes characters in James Bond movies. No comment. (laughs) Uh, Alex Levinson, polar bears are poor symbols of climate disruption because most Americans will never see one and have no emotional attachment to them. Obviously not. Sergei Petrov, the exodus of Syrian refugees to Europe is partly fueled by climate disruption and drought. Yeah, I agree with Brookings Institute who who made this... uh, a conclusion recently. Researcher at the University of California at Santa Barbara, Colin, Colin Kelly, recently did a, published a paper on that topic. Uh, Hilda Scorpin, a Syrian refugee, recently rode a bicycle through Russia to Norway. Syrian refugee, bicycle, Russia, Norway. Yes or no? Yes. Northern countries, also for Hilda Scorpin, northern countries will see more climate refugees as the world heats up. Yes. Sergei Petrov, during our lifetime, climate wars will be caused by stress on food, water, and immigration systems. Yeah, I think so. Alex Alex Levinson, a warmer Arctic means that more people will be able to experience its natural wonders in person. Yes. Uh, William Collins, the scientist, climate scientist James Hansen, who recently wrote an alarming article about sea level rise triggered by the melting Greenland ice sheet, sometimes blurs the line between science and advocacy. Wow. Um, (laughs) (laughs) This is a a tough question. I'm going to go with yes, but um, you will find many colleagues who admire what he's done as well. So, but I'm going with yes. There's many other people been on this stage who would say the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, Hilda Scorpin, Norway should leave most of its hydrocarbons in the ground. Yes. Uh, William, ending, with, um, <laughs> ending with William Collins, climate-conscious people, all mm-hmm. of us here and listening to this, are at risk of seeing cl- a climate connection in every warm body of water, every freak storm, and every heat wave, mm-hmm. even when that connection is not really there. Uh, I'm afraid the answer to that is yes. I plead guilty to that. That's how they do on our lightning round today, Climate One. And now, here's a Climate One Minute. Does the Alaskan Arctic hold the next big oil bonanza? 
When Shell Oil President Marvin Odom visited Climate One just two years ago, he had high hopes for the area, despite some very public setbacks. When asked if drilling in the Arctic might be more difficult and expensive than they'd anticipated, Odom had this to say. So I never take it lightly is, the, uh, I think, the most important thing that, uh, that I can say to that question. But it's not something that we haven't done before. Off the north slope of Alaska, you have the Beaufort Sea and the Chukchi Sea. There's been about 30 wells drilled in the Beaufort to this point in history, and we drilled a number of those. There's been five wells that have been drilled in the Chukchi, and we drilled four of those five. So it's not an unknown quantity from that, that perspective. Now, that, in no way is that an excuse for you know, losing a drilling rig in a storm and having it run aground. You know, that's a separate issue that we have to address and, and, and put some other marine transit elements in place to make sure that, you know, there's no chance of that happening again. So we don't take it lightly, but we, we do know how to do this, actually, to drill these wells. That was Shell Oil President Marvin Odom in 2013. After spending over $7 billion to drill in the region, Shell recently announced that it hasn't found enough oil to make it worthwhile, and it's pulling the plug on its Alaskan operations. In a statement released September 28th, Odom called the outcome clearly disappointing. Now back to Greg Dalton and our live live audience at the Commonwealth Club. We mentioned Paris. I want to come back to the, there's some big, important climate negotiations happening in Paris later this year. The uh, U.S. Is, has a plan out there. Most countries do. Uh, Sergei Petrov, uh, what is Russia's plan, and is it aggressive enough to join the leadership of other countries, U.S. and China? Uh, to tell you frankly, I don't know the exact uh, numbers of um, the future Russian input um, uh, in, uh, that would be announced in, in Paris in December, but... Uh, definitely there will be one, and uh, it will be substantial because uh, we are very much aware of um, uh, changes happening in our world, and uh, uh, it's not just um, just uh, uh, north getting warmer, but we have many more other related uh, things that are getting uh, worse and worse. For example, if we speak about Russia, we never experienced tornadoes in Russia just 10 years, 20 years ago. We never experienced icing rain in Russia. But it, it all happened recently. It's happening recently. So the, uh, it's not just global warming. It's just uh, imbalance in our uh, climate that is causing... Uh, uh, our climate to go to the extremes, uh, be it uh, very cold or uh, flooding or droughts. So we, we, we definitely aware that we should do something about that. And hopefully Paris will come up with, with a new uh, Kyoto Protocol yes, that will help us to, to live uh, with new targets and to be able to keep the warming uh, down under to to degrees centigrade. Alex Levinson, what's your hope for Paris? Is it going to be a real deal, or is it going to be a half-empty victory? Well, I'm, I'm not going to predict, but what I am going to say, my hope is that we'll continue the momentum that a number of nations have begun to build toward, including certainly the biggest two emitters, U.S. and China, mm-hmm. forging that agreement a year or so ago. Yeah. Uh, that was enormously powerful because even though both of those nations, each of those nations is not doing enough, the trends are very important. And both of those nations were doing almost nothing and going the wrong way. 
and each has made some turns toward doing things the right way. President Obama now has, toward the end of his term, we can say he's been the best climate president we've had. He's taken on all of the issues that, um, you know, the emissions come from buildings, they come from fossil fuels, they come um, from um, um, cars and transportation, that's also fossil fuels, sorry. And each of those, he's done things to regulate them, while also his administration has done things to regulate them, while also pushing out uh, on, the, on the clean energy side as well, efficiency, solar, wind, and other sources, and created the credibility to then make a deal with China. So we're going into Paris with at least the opportunity and the hope to make a big further step. Hilda Scorpin, there was a time when the, a lot of the world looked for U.S. leadership on climate. It wasn't there. Uh, does the U.S. The, is the U.S. now seen in Europe as a climate leader? I think that um, that uh, President Obama is uh, seen as a uh, per, uh, as a leader who uh, really takes uh, climate change uh, seriously and want to achieve uh, mm. uh, real results. Uh, the fact that he visited uh, Alaska, uh, we we saw as uh, as a uh, sign that uh, that the U.S. is taking uh, its uh, leadership of the Arctic Council and uh, its uh, climate commitment uh, to the uh, changes in the Arctic uh, very seriously as well. So we welcome very much the leadership uh, uh, that uh, Obama is, uh, President Obama is, uh, is taking also in the Arctic. But I just wanted to uh, add one thing, and that is that, uh, that when we are talking about the Arctic, uh, I think that we have a tendency to think about this just sort of frozen desolate uh, place that is uh, uh, completely inaccessible. And we have a tendency to forget that people are living there. There are four, four million people uh, living uh, north of the Arctic Circle. Um, for Norway, 10% of our population are uh, north of the Arctic Circle. 30% of our uh, territory. So we are, when we talk about the Arctic Norway, it, is, it isn't an exotic place. It is a place where people live. Um, we have universities there. We have um, uh, built the uh, foremost uh, research um, um, facilities in, uh, in Tromsø and uh, on Svalbard. I just want to mention that that is uh, uh, part of Norway, um, an archipelago, uh, very f which is really what, uh, where you have to go to to find uh, uh, what we think about as Arctic conditions with, with melting of the ice and so on. And that has become a research station for, uh, for uh, scientists from all over the world uh, and uh, doing very, very important uh, um, research on uh, the effects of climate change because there is so many things we don't know. So we need to, uh, to get, uh, really get the uh, uh, scientific uh, data on the table. Some people might see the Arctic uh, warming as a good thing. Sergei Petrov, are there some Russians who say, ah, we could use a little warmer in Siberia. It's not so bad, this global warming thing, right? There may be winners. There may be some areas, some people who see positive benefits and they don't see the negative. Is that true? There are some, there, there's sure some people like that and not just in Russia, but I think it's, it's a very responsible approach. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, definitely what's happening is it should be within our uh, focused attention to, to prevent uh, uh, global warming from changing our uh, planet uh, because we don't know what will happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I would agree with Alex uh, that uh, one day we definitely should stop using f fossil fuel altogether. 
And the sooner we do that, the better. Uh, the only thing that we, before we do that, we should find other sources of energy. And if our scientists, our uh, technology people are good enough to do it quicker, then let's do it quicker, and we, we, we should do that. Sergei Petrov is Consul General for Russia and San Francisco. Our other guests today at Climate One are Hilda Skorpin, the Consul General for Norway, William Collins, a senior scientist at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, and Alex Levinson, Executive Director of the Pacific Environmental Group. I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to ask each of you um, some bright spots here in terms of where some things, there's been some positive change uh, before we have to hand out antidepressants in the audience here. Uh, Hilda Skorpin, tell us about, there are some bright spots happening in the Arctic, particularly with fish stocks. Yes, the fish stock is uh, a bright spot, and uh, that is largely due to uh, very good um, management. Uh, And uh, we have managed particularly the uh, Arctic uh, cod uh, together with uh, Russia since 1976, actually, in a joint uh, uh, Russian-Norwegian fisheries commission. Uh, That has been very, very fruitful uh, cooperation. Other bright spots is that... um, the most important thing to us is to keep the Arctic as an area of uh, peace and security and cooperation. Mm-hmm. And the uh, states uh, of the uh, Arctic very much uh, favor or work uh, in favor of that. Cooperation is uh, on everybody's uh, uh, agenda to further cooperation in these areas that are so important to us. Oil spill was mentioned. The Arctic Council has uh, been the... Um, forum where two uh, binding, legally binding uh, agreements have originated. One is on uh, oil spill uh, prevention and the other one is on search and rescue. Mm. Uh, so that is, a, that is a bright spot that uh, we have managed to keep the Arctic as a zone of, uh, of cooperation. And we have also uh, great interest from uh, countries uh, from far away, uh, observer countries. So Countries are interested in what is happening in the Arctic because they are aware of the fact that they are going to all, we are all going to feel the consequences. William Collins, bright spots in the Arctic as a scientist, do you see any other than melting ice? Well, I I guess there are are two bright spots. The first is that our ability to measure and understand how the system is changing is constantly improving. So there's a, a continual investment in really understanding the system as it changes. And the second is that there really is an international spirit now of cooperation on understanding how to mitigate climate change in the Arctic. I've participated in discussions and meetings led by the Arctic Council designed to figure out how to reduce the impact of fossil fuel consumption on the Arctic, understand the impacts, uh, understand uh, measures that could be taken to uh, slow the rate of change, so there is an international spirit of cooperation around preserving this really critical part of the planet. And I think that is a bright spot. Alex Levinson, uh, you had some interactions with the Coast Guard that resulted in a bright spot. Tell us that. The Coast Guard is an agency that's really not used to having public pressure, the way the Environmental Protection Agency is or the U.S. Forest Service. Um, we found ourselves in a situation where there were a set of nations discussing how to create international protections for the Arctic waters, Arctic, or for ships, essentially, going through the Arctic. And um, Russia and a number of other nations were in favor of a ban on garbage dumping, and the U.S. was not. And the Coast Guard is the lead delegation. Different agencies are the delegation. So we um, did an action alert to our members and said, write the Coast Guard and ask them, why is the U.S. not supporting a ban on garbage dumping when Russia, we actually mentioned Russia, and other nations are supporting that? And the Coast Guard called us pretty angrily, 
and said, you know, what are you doing? Because they're not used to that. And we said to them, you know, we really want to work with you. We think the U.S. ought to take the right position. The U.S. did. And there is a ban on garbage dumping. And if I may, um, there, are, there are policy um, initiatives in the Arctic that are bright spots. Um, there is an, a new set of regulations that uh, protect marine mammals and marine species and communities from the anticipated increase in shipping traffic. It's called the Polar Code. It applies to Antarctica and the Arctic. Um, all of the nations here in the U.S. have all been signatories to it. It came out of a U.N. agency. Have they gone far enough? Not at all, because they still allow oil ships to carry and use heavy fuel oil, which is really damaging. But it's a very important first step. And I mentioned before the Arctic five nations, Canada, the U.S., Norway, Russia, and Denmark, Denmark because of Greenland, did sign an agreement to uh, put a moratorium on fishing in the high seas because each nation controls its territorial waters, but all the other fishing nations of the world can go into the high seas and fish. China, Japan, Korea can all go into the middle of the Arctic and fish, but these nations have signed an agreement to say, let's put a moratorium on until we figure out and understand better the ecology and put a fisheries management system in place. So there are bright spots. Uh, Alex Levinson, also, there's some, many environmentalists are concerned about increasing militarization in the Arctic. If there's resources, there's need more military activity up there. Isn't that inevitable? Isn't it natural that countries like Russia and others protect their undefended borders and that military presence up there may be a good thing? You know, the question I think really shows there's really two visions of what can happen in the Arctic. One vision is nations act like they do elsewhere, and you'll have a tremendously increased shipping you will have militarization issues and treaties, and certainly Russia and the U.S. and some of the European nations and China wanting to have their peace and making sure they're protecting their interests. Um, you'll have greatly increased um, fossil fuel mining, both offshore oil and gas drilling and coal mining. And you'll ultimately have fishing, uh, overfishing and collapse of stocks. Or the other vision is you treat it the way we treat Antarctica and the way we've tried to treat the moon and you try to internationalize it and treat it as a global commons and a special, unique global heritage. And the polar code I just mentioned does treat it. Most of the global waters around the entire world are regulated by law of the sea, but in addition to the law of the sea, a special set of regulations were put into the Arctic. So I think really the solution is to treat the Arctic as a unique, unusual part of the global heritage and separate it out from the normal rules, the way we do for Antarctica. Uh, just, just, just to add, if I may, um, melting Arctic is making it easier for people uh, to access it. And uh, okay, there are bad people and good people in the world, and uh, definitely there should be more um, dangers, more uh, challenges for the uh, states that uh, live around the uh, Arctic Ocean, including Russia. And if we speak about Russia, uh, Russia has the longest uh, uh, border uh, with the Arctic Ocean, uh, the longest coast of the Arctic Ocean. And it's, it's mostly unpopulated land uh, that is not uh, protected by any border control or anything. So it's quite natural to have some uh, law enforcement uh, military um, uh, possibilities there that would be would be there when we could have some uh, challengers coming from the Arctic. But uh, 
doing that and every country uh, living around uh, the Arctic Ocean uh, is, is doing that, trying to protect its sovereign territory. But what we should do, and that's exactly what we are doing now, uh, be it within uh, Convention on the Law of the Sea, using this UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, or or using the uh, forums like fora like uh, Arctic Council is to try to uh, to protect the Arctic from the challengers uh, in a cooperative way in doing it together, and I think that uh, that is exactly the way we should do it in future. We're talking about the Arctic at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to our first question. Welcome. Hi, I was interested in the carbon tanking that uh, Madam Scorpio said, but what about the permafrost releasing, uh, melting and releasing all the methane? Is it possible to tank the methane and carbon from the permafrost? William Collins? So the difficulty there is that you've got a very large source. It's spread over 10 million square kilometers. So it's not the, the technology that's being used to stash carbon at the oil wells in Norway, and, and uh, we're experimenting here w- uh, with that technology in the United States. That's a point source, so it's very easy to also you stash it directly underground. Um, not possible with permafrost. I'm sorry. Once once the carbon is emitted into the atmosphere, it's in the atmosphere. So it's best not to get it in there in the first place. Next question. Welcome. Hi there. Um, the topic of Arctic observer states has come up um, a couple of times in the conversation, and uh, I just wanted to hear from the perspective of um, Russia and um, Norway and others um, kind of what the role should be. Uh, the numbers have expanded, and um, new players are coming in. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on um, how that dynamic should play out going forward. Other players in the Arctic? Hilda Scorpin? Uh, <clears throat> yes, I mentioned, um, um, well, we have uh, admitted uh, in 2013, uh, China was admitted as a as an observer to the um, to the Arctic Council, uh, South Korea, Japan, India, um, several countries in uh, in uh, Europe, and uh, uh, Norway is also uh, advocating uh, the EU becoming an um, observer to the uh, Arctic Council. What we see is that uh, is that um, uh, countries uh, on the other side of the of the globe, so to speak, uh, uh, recognize. That uh, that uh, what is ha- happening in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic, to put it that way, and it's going to affect them. And it's a bit what we have been speaking about earlier. Uh, how is it going to affect um, uh, the cli- their their climate? Um, how is a country like uh, Singapore, for instance, going to be affected? Uh, low-lying uh, island states, uh, coastal areas in general, uh, and uh, research is. Uh, uh, of course, the um, Arctic Council started out as, uh, with uh, emphasis on the environment, and that uh, has remained uh, the major um, focus. So uh, to other countries, it is interesting and uh, important uh, for their own future, and they also have something to, to uh, contribute, we believe. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, Carter Brooks, artist and philosopher of climate art. Uh, In his great book, Arctic Dreams, Barry Lopez has a passage describing standing on the sea ice and the whole ecosystem of plankton feeding everything, but he ends this paragraph with, and it gives me a place to stand on the ocean and wonder. So my question is, as we lose the sea ice or the perennials or the 
the permanent sea ice or, or the you know, Greenland glaciers, what are we going to miss? What should be we witnessing now or learning from that aesthetically or otherwise? Who'd like to take that? Hmm. Alex Levinson? I'll take it just to thank you for the question, because of course it's natural that we're spending most of our time, I think as we should be, talking about policy and science. But actually one of the things that moves me, it's certainly not what brought me into the environmental field, but now I'm hearing that the ice-dependent creatures, so you're talking about big mammals like polar bears and walrus and probably some marine species whose interactions ecologically we don't understand. Imagine if you are a creature who lives on the ice, that's, that's your ecology, and the ice is disappearing whether these creatures are going to make it is, is now an open question that scientists are trying to answer and that then we'll have to try to put policy in, and that brings us back to the policy and the science. But there's an aesthetic, um, moral, and human aspect to what's happening there as well. And so I just thank you for the question. There's been some haunting photographs going around recently of emaciated polar bears that's really striking, uh, drives that home, our impact on some species up there. Let's go to our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, I'm Don Zorowski, and I'm with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. And I know we have several work groups at EPA that are uh, wrestling with uh, issues related to Arctic. I'm wondering how much interaction there is between the Norwegian and Russian governments with the EPA work groups. <laughs> Interesting. Is that a lie? Uh, what, what, <laughs> what, what I should say, um, um, uh, we... We are marking the fifth anniversary today, uh, not today, but this month, um, of uh, uh, Russia and Norway signing an agreement um, that um, established the border and eliminated any contested territories in the Arctic. And uh, I'm not sure about uh, Norway, Hilde will tell us, but uh, Russia is um, the country that doesn't have any territorial claims to any 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 neighbor in the Arctic. Uh, and as far as I know, we are, we are working very closely with uh, uh, Norway in terms of uh, trying to use all the technological advances uh, to protect and to make the extraction of uh, gas and oil, while we are sti- still doing that, uh, safer and uh, more responsible. Yeah, and if I may um, just add... Uh uh, just last week, in fact, uh, Norway and Russia uh, renewed uh, its uh, agreement uh, on uh, mutual uh, notification uh, um, uh, in the case of nuclear accidents. And we have had uh, cooperation. Uh, we have a joint commission, in fact, on nuclear uh, issues. And we have uh, cooperated on uh, um, cleaning up... Uh, nuclear materials on the uh, Kola Peninsula, which is very close to the Norwegian border, uh, stemming from, uh, from the time of the, of the Cold War, uh, which has been very important uh, to, to, to us, of course, uh, and, and the region in general. And uh, uh, these are examples of uh, cross-border uh, uh, environmental challenges uh, that, uh, that we all uh, have to, uh, to uh, tackle together. Sure seems like the Arctic is a neighborhood where countries uh, play nice together and get along and humans are kind of on some of their better behavior. Let's hope that stays the case as uh, more money's at stake. Welcome to Climate One. Let's have our next question. Hi, my name is Wayne. I'm a climate activist with 350.org. Alex, you you brought up a metaphor that I've rolled around in my mind a lot, that we're rushing over a cliff. I think of us as 
as Wiley E. Coyote, civilization, chasing the roadrunner, which is fossil fuels, and we're always chasing it. But climate change is a giant geological cliff that will last for maybe 100,000 years, James Hansen has said. So I ask each of you up there to tell me, what would it take for you to, uh, to recognize how serious this problem is and say, oh my God, we have to stop digging up fossil fuels or we're going to go over that climate cliff and there ain't no tomorrow. Sergey Petrov, you have children, grandchildren. Do they factor into you thinking that? Uh, yes, I, I'm sure that uh, they will probably, not will probably, but they should see the time that we are uh, doing much better with climate and we are using less dangerous sources of energy and the, using mostly green sources of energy. Yes, we, I would be happy to see that, and uh, I'm sure that we'll be able to reach that if we do it all collectively. Because every country uh, doing separately would do nothing to change the situation, to reverse the trends, uh, dangerous trends with the climate. We only can do it uh, if we act collectively. I'm going to uh, twist this or push this further a little bit. Uh, Pope Francis' encyclical is one of the best things you can possibly read about climate. I don't recommend many climate books, but that one is, is special. It's different. Alex Levinson, he's asking us, each of us, to, to do things for our own dignity, for our own morality, not wait until someone else takes action, not wait until Paris, not wait until the price on carbon. Each of us, for moral reasons, today, now. So I want to put that point on the question about what would it take for all of us to do more, starting with Alex, and we'll go down. It's a great question, and it's a hard question. And it's, of course, the answer is each one of us answers it for ourselves in terms of how we structure our own life, what kind of cars we drive or don't drive, uh, what kind of life we live or don't live. But then it needs more than that, right? It needs us to then say, you know, in what way am I going to go out there and um, get involved with 350.org, a terrific organization that's new and has really been a terrific communicator of the depth of the challenge, or run for office, which I hope each of you mm -hmm. who's clapped for us here today will think about, because we actually really need, I think, to, to take back the activism in our society so that we can make the difference. William Collins, uh, climate scientist, some of the great public intellectuals, woke up the world on this issue. Uh, and I've interviewed a lot of great climate scientists who take a, a lot of uh, personal attacks because of the work they do. And yet they fly all over the world talking about climate science and with huge carbon oh, footprints. I was hoping you weren't going to go. <laughs> so, so what's it going to back to what's it going to take yeah. for climate scientists to say we're doing noble work, mm -hmm. but we're not getting on airplanes anymore? So there has been uh, an increasing emphasis, uh, especially in Europe, on having meetings that don't involve air travel. I think that's a particularly important trend. Uh, the climate community is, in, is certainly aware, for example, of the carbon commitment associated with the development of some of our leading assessments, like the IPCC report, very large carbon footprint, I'm sorry to say. Let me just bring this slightly closer to home. Uh, the University of California, of which I'm a member, is in the process of writing a report that will be issued next month to Governor Brown, also to Secretary Moniz, also to representatives from the United Nations, describing how the University of California is going to move to become carbon neutral uh, in a very short time frame. Part of that's going to involve a very serious look at air travel. And so the university is going to commit 
commit very seriously to becoming carbon neutral, and I think that's a huge and very positive step forward. Also, to come back to your question about what do we do about it, I mean, I have the, uh, really the pleasure of teaching a lot of people earlier in life about um, these issues, and I think the, the primary thing that I'm trying to do is to tell them that this is not, it's both a challenge and it's the world's biggest opportunity. I mean, you, you talk about the, the great generation in the Second World War, some of the greatest generations to come are in the future. So I think we should go forward with that spirit and we'll be, and I think with that spirit, we can take this challenge on. William Collins is a senior scientist at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. Let's go to our next question at Climate One. So as the polar ice is melting, mm -hmm. uh, it's changing the shape of the earth. Mm -hmm. What ramifications is that going to have? So I, there, can I take that question on? This is, there's an important Greek that we have to mention right at this point named Archimedes. Um, and so Archimedes dealt with the issue about what happens when an ice cube um, melts in a glass of ice. And it doesn't actually, the total volume of water doesn't change, the sea level doesn't rise. What does change the geometry of the earth and certainly the geometry of the coastlines is to take all the ice that's currently sitting a kilometer or so above sea level and then to dump that into the ocean. So that's what happens when you take uh, portions of Greenland, portions of Antarctica, melt them, and then raise the sea level. That does change the geometry of the coastlines very appreciably. Um, so the impact of that will be, um, if you take look at the United States, for example, 50% of the population lives within a fairly short distance of the coastline. And those populations will be affected. There are many other nations if we think, now think in terms of climate equity issues, many other countries, populations that are much less able to adapt because they're, they don't have the, the wealth or the means that we do, they'll be very directly affected by rising seas. Uh, Bangladesh is, is, a, is a leading example. And so this, is, this issue around the Arctic quickly translates, I think this is very important to remember, into a climate equity issue. Uh, how do we ensure that all nations benefit from our, from our efforts to mitigate and to adapt to climate change. As we wrap up here, I want to ask each of you briefly, what gives you hope? Sergei Petrov, very briefly, we've heard a lot of uh, dark, uh, redoomed things here today. <laughs> uh, a lot of, some opportunity, some real bright spots. What gives you hope, Sergei? We are homo sapiens. We are reasonable people, and we should <laughs> find a way out. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Alex Levinson. What gives me hope is that in the U.S. we've had a very successful campaign among activists and many others to begin to really get us off coal as a major fossil fuel. Mm -hmm. And um, that made me think, wow, this, we really can, if the U.S. can do this and finish the job with that kind of leadership, and there's a long way to go. But that, we're on the right track. Had some good wins. Hilda Scorpin. That uh, we are more and more seeing uh, this is a win-win mm -hmm. and that we recognize that we have to cooperate. We don't mm -hmm. have a choice. William Collins. We can produce as much energy as we need from renewable resources. That's what gives me hope. We've been talking about the Arctic and climate change at Climate One with our guests, William Collins, a senior scientist at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, Alex Levinson, executive director of Pacific Environment, Sergei Petrov, consul general for Russia in San Francisco, and Hilda Skorpen, consul general for Norway. I'm Greg Dalton. You can listen to a podcast of this on the Climate One website, climateone.org, and view videos. I'd like to thank our audience here in the room and online and on air for joining us, and we hope to see you again at Climate One. Thank you.
Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer, and Alyssa Kerr is our assistant producer. The audio engineer is John Rieger, with help from Will Llewellyn. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.